Welcome to the Grow Bowl with Disability podcast, brought to you by Ferros Care, a podcast dedicated to smashing stereotypes and talking about the things people with disability care about most to help us live bolder, healthier, better connected lives. I'm journalist Pete Timms. And I'm Tristram Peters. I work for Disability Service Directory Clickability and I'm a wheelchair user living with spinal muscular atrophy. Today's episode of Grow Bold with Disability is growing bold by fostering diversity and inclusion. And our guest is Rachel Hosking. Now, she's the co-owner of an amazing new, it's an inclusive nightclub actually, in Adelaide, in South Australia, called My Lover Cindy. In this episode, we'll hear all about the concept of My Lover Cindy. It's pretty incredible. And why Rachel and her business partner, Kate Toon, thought Adelaide, actually Australia, needs spaces like My Lover Cindy and where the great name came from as well. Rachel, welcome to Grow Bowl with Disability. Thank you so much for having me. So firstly, Rachel, My Lover Cindy is an LGBTIQ plus nightclub with a focus on accessibility. Can you tell us everything about it? You know, what is it about? Sure. Um, so My Lover Cindy is listed as a bar and nightclub, an LGBTIQ space. It is essentially a, yeah, it is a bar and nightclub space, but we also have this real focus on kind of community stuff. Um, we've always wanted to be more than just, I guess I say just in inverted commas, a nightclub. And we just wanted to be able to centralise a whole lot of kind of really cool community stuff that's happening in, in LGBTIQ communities um, here on Ghana land. So I guess for, in terms of inception, um, it came around um, after Kate and I were actually having a conversation in our kitchen. Um, we wanted to go out. We wanted to go out and enjoy a night of partying somewhere. We have friends who use mobility aids and we have noticed on many occasions um, there have been real issues with um, some of our friends being able to partake in uh, nightlife in Adelaide, especially in LGBTIQ spaces. Um, so that's basically where the concept was born. What else would you like to know? <laughs> well, the now before actually before you opened the, this place, Kate worked in social services and academia. Yes, and you did a little bit of a hospital. You've had a bit of hospital experience while you were doing your undergrad for psychology. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. What, what made you decide? I, I know what you just said then, but what like that's a big step. Sides from yeah. going. Oh, we can't find somebody to go out to be in a nightclub. Sure, 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 sure. Seems like a bit of a long blow. <laughs> yeah. um, I guess with our backgrounds, both of us. Um, you know, it felt like a really natural and organic fusion of our passions. Um, so Kate being a social worker by trade, myself having a real interest in human psychology and also super, super passionate about hospitality in and out of it for years. I also have a bit of a background in banking. So there was kind of that, um, I guess, businessy side of things, um, a bit of experience there. So whilst on paper it looks like a bit of a long bow, it was actually a really organic kind of decision that we came to. It's kind of like a bit of a light bulb moment that we had upon, you know, it was actually just years and years and years of frustrations, I guess, around um, limitations in Adelaide's nightlife for LGBTIQ people that ended up coming to this kind of this, this conversation in our kitchen and deciding to really commit to providing something that was going to be really meaningful and fun for lots of people. Um, mm. So, yeah, that's how it came around from our backgrounds. And I'd love to 
uh, hone in on that accessibility just a little bit more. I, I mean, the last sure. time I went to a nightclub, um, I had to go up a lift yeah. um, that a manager had a key to. Yeah. The manager disappeared, so I was actually stuck for an hour just waiting oh. to get into the place. So access for me is, is so, so important. I mean, sure. what, what does that focus look like you and why, you know, along the similar vein, why is it important for your yeah. nightclub? For sure, Tristram. I'm so sorry that that happened. That sounds really frustrating. Um, again, if we wanted to open somewhere that was going to be accessible. We wanted it to be a um, really intrinsic part of the business that we were building um, because historically and currently there is a real limitation um, for people who use mobility aids in partaking in nightlife, like as you've just given that anecdotal account for yourself. So it was a real non-negotiable for us um, because, yeah, there's just this, you know, whole group of people um, within the LGBTI community who were excluded from night spaces um, in Adelaide. Adelaide ha- does have a lot of, um, I guess you'd say, heritage-listed buildings, which makes um, installation of things like lifts and stuff a, a, a real barrier for a, a lot of businesses. We actually looked at four different sites before landing on our current one because it was just it was just never going to be a negotiable for us. We were not going to open a venue that we couldn't invite everybody into and still call it, you know, we wanted to call ourselves an inclusive venue. Um, so, yeah, it was a huge part of our ethos from the beginning um, and it kind of informed a lot of the decision-making around uh, doorways and, you know, once we'd actually landed on the site that was going to be appropriate, I should preface with that, um, once we landed on the site that was going to be appropriate, we... Um, we, yeah, we, we drew on experiences of friends who use mobility aids, different types of mobility aids. We put out a survey um, to the LGBTIQ community to access to help inform a lot of the decisions around the physical location of things to the best of our ability within a, r- a rather limited budget and just little things like... Um, where a hand soap dispenser should be in bathrooms, um, how a swing door can make or break someone's night experience because it doesn't, you know, work properly and things like that. It was really imperative to us as well that everyone who would access the venue would use exactly the same entrance and there was not going to be any need for, I guess, staff to have to assist somebody to physically access the venue so, yeah, we were really fortunate that eventually we came across a site that was going to meet those needs um, and we knocked down a couple of doorways and put in um, more appropriate ones um, to just try and make it as accessible as possible. Now, it's not just – well, it's accessibility in the ethos as well, but also like I noticed like on your drinks menu, like there's menus there for non-alcoholic, lots of non-alcoholic options. You said you did the survey. This thing was important. Yeah. Now, was it – to have a venue that's inclusive and accessible, is it more expensive? And if not, then why don't more people do it? Look, it's a really good question. I think just I, I, I don't understand why more businesses are not making these sorts of concerted efforts because we know that a large percentage of the population do identify as having disabilities and, you know, currently not being able to access venues. It's, you know, from even just wholly from a business perspective, that doesn't actually make any sense. Mm. I think it's just unfortunately a huge part of 
um, so-called Australian culture. It's just this sort of erasure of um, of people with disabilities. So in answer to your question, in some parts, yes, making a lot of those changes is expensive and that, you know, that I'm sure has been a barrier for some people. Things like the sober offerings, etc. again, it's more time and effort and, you know, really carefully thinking about menus to make sure that you're going to meet as many needs as possible. Um, there isn't, of course, a one-size-fits-all approach, and we mm. know that with um, accessibility as well, you know, the, something that might be accessible to one person is actually going to be a barrier for another one. So we really avoid using terms like fully accessible for that reason. But, yeah, we're super, super grateful to everybody who helped informed these things through the um, survey and through physically coming through the venue to help us make some of these decisions, which, yeah, they do cost money um, and, it, you know, that 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 is just a part of it. Um, but for us it just was not going to be a, um, you know, it was a real non-negotiable. We'd rather mm. compromise on other things and have um, the venue be accessible. Wow. Great. Yeah, so well said. And related to that, in your mission statement, uh, you also mentioned employment opportunities for those who have limitations. How has that come to fruition? Yeah, it's amazing. <laughs> um, the way that that works, I guess, is that, yes, we are a bar and night space um, and we advertise roles that would be suitable um, for running a bar and night space. Um, but we've tried to, in our um, employment process, prioritise people with disabilities as well as, you know, people from other marginalised groups. Um, and that's actually ended up coming to fruition through things like, you know, providing appropriate um, support um, roles. Like, for example, if people have physical disabilities, we've got um, a few people on rotation on our door, so people who um, actually manage the queue um, and they take payment and things like that at the door. Other types of disabilities aren't necessarily as visible um, and we, you know, try and support our staff as best as possible um, in that, you know, if somebody needs to take a break, then they need to take a break. There's just no kind of, um, there's no issues with that stuff. It's just built into our culture as employers. And in turn, it means that, you know, our patrons, it, it's so, so, so important um, to have representation and it means that our patrons come in and they can see people who either, you know, who look like them in some way or, you know, are, are able to be in the workforce um, in this vibrant night space. Um, so it's not necessarily about, you know, employing somebody who's got the best cocktail flaring skills. It's just that was just never part of our ethos because all of that stuff comes. You can teach that stuff, but you can't, you can't manufacture the type of interactions that our staff are able to provide our customers that keeps people coming back. Yeah. Um, so it's really beautiful to see. Yeah, great idea. Now, you guys opened, what, end of May 2021 last yeah. year? Yeah, yeah, it was just at the end of May last year. So what have you guys learned? I mean, everyone, you can go into, I know I've built, <laughs> I've built places from scratch as well, restaurants <laughs> and stuff. You can go in with all the greatest ideas, yeah. but then you have to adapt. I can For hear sure. you laughing already. You know what I'm going to say. Yeah. <laughs> what, ha, what have you had to adjust to, to uh, get this inclusion accessibility up to where it is now? For sure. I mean, look, it's, a, it's all a learning process and by no means were we perfect from the beginning and we're definitely not there now either. We as a business, we do have limitations that will mean that we're never 
perfect for people with disabilities. However, you know, things like the opening night weekend, um, we were really, 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 really busy, um, which was great. But that did present some challenges for people who were trying to access the bar. So despite having, even on opening night, a very clearly marked um, priority access area for people with disabilities, Mm -hmm. unfortunately, through um, lack of ability to manage those queues on the night, just because of how busy we were, it meant that for some people, I believe that experience was not as positive as it should have been. Mm. Um, So what we did in response to that was we actually moved to the priority access area. We got a fresh rope to kind of clearly mark that out. We've put up additional stuff on our social media and trained our staff in um, prioritising that area of service so that on other nights where we have been really busy since, um, it is just that little bit easier for people with mobility aids to actually access that bar. We've taken on feedback about things like just really little things like glassware. For example, if somebody's using a wheelchair, um, it may not be appropriate to serve a martini you know, in a martini glass for that person. Mm. Um, so we ask, we simply ask the person what, how they would like their drink served, whether they'd like it in the traditional glass or whether they'd like that, with, you know, in a mason jar. And everybody's different, you know. If, for some people, they would still prefer to have it in a martini glass. Other people say, hey, I'll have a mason jar. Thanks for asking. Mm. Little things like that. Yeah. I 100% will take the mason jar. That is so <laughs> yeah. much <easier>. <laughs> <laughs> um, Yeah. And with those, I mean, with those learnings, um, how has the club been accepted within the community, the LGBTI uh, Q community, the, the Adelaide community? How's it been accepted? Look, I like to think overwhelmingly positive um, because you know the people who we have in the venue are happy and they come back. And as a business, you know, we've been able to survive through COVID and some of the biggest challenges that can be really facing a bricks and mortar business in its early days of inception. I don't know what sort of um, external broad criticisms there may be of the venue. If there are, then they're not landing on our plate for us to be able to address. We're really open to feedback, like even on our sort of website, there's stuff about contacting us if you have any issues. We've put up signs around the venue to say if you're having issues, come to the bar if you can, notify security, that sort of thing. Um, But all of our original staff members who started with us are still Um, very much engaged and I think that that's a real sign of Mm. um, sort of loyalty and um, that that we must be doing something right. Yeah, and in this day and age, if no one's complaining, then you know you're doing a good thing. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, you've got to have a thick skin. Um, Yes. The the community is super, super diverse. You know, there is – it's not a monolith and – like I started it with earlier, it's, you know, one thing that's appropriate for some for one person is inappropriate for another person. Um, but it's just about how you manage feedback when it's presented to you. And I think in our mission statement, I even um, we even mentioned, you know, never being above community feedback. And that's something that we've really tried to hold on to. Mm. Um, so, yeah, we address things. We address issues when they come up and do our best to try and fix them within um, the scope that we have. Yeah. Now, we've obviously mentioned the LGBTIQ plus um, community and the disability community. Mm -hmm. Why do you think these two communities keep sort of getting banded together when it comes to things like this? Um, Look, I think that stuff around, yeah, intersectionality of those things is really valid. They seem to intersect frequently. I'm thinking even historically in Adelaide, they've been 
issues with accessibility in LGBTIQ spaces for as long as, um, you know, I've been around and that's only, <laughs> you know, that's, that's 20, 20 years now that I've been out in night spaces. Um, I think it's that understanding of being a little bit different to the heteronormative able-bodied existence that is the mainstream mm-hmm. um, and that's the default, I guess, for existence in so-called Australia is that, that that is the norm, that is the structures, that is all that kind of covert stuff that just exists in our day-to-day lives. So when somebody identifies as being LGBT or being a part of the LGBTIQ community, you're sort of somewhat removed from that norm. And I think that, that there's this sort of intrinsic understanding across communities. So that when you've also got somebody who may be identifying as being disabled, they are also outside of that default heteronormative mm-hmm. existence, um, which is built very much for able-bodied people. Um, so I guess that's how I'd best answer that around how that intersection often happens. It's just that shared understanding of deviating, not deviating, but being different from the norm. Mm, 100%. And you also have some uh, amazing acts come through the venue. We do. Can you tell us a little bit more about some of the, the interesting ones, some of the acts you get through? Yeah, for sure. So, um we are a bar and night space, so we have DJs and dancing when we're allowed to dance, although we haven't been able to <laughs> do that for the majority of our trade. When it is happening, it's fantastic. Our dance floor is full um, of, you know, people from all different walks of life, um, which is one of the things I think I love most about the venue is that there never seems to be two people there who are the same. Um mm on the dance floor and things like that. You've got people who are using mobility aids, different types. You've got able-bodied people. You've got people from all kind of ranges of age spectrum. Um, So other types of performance stuff that we put on, we work with producers who um, put on things like alternative drag nights. Um, So it's, again, it's about providing that space for things that are just a little bit outside of the normal cookie-cutter LGBTIQ stuff that you see everywhere. Um, So a lot of stuff for up-and-coming type of um, drag performers. We also do variety nights um, with some producers called The Finest Filth, and they just put on this short, sharp, shiny uh, kind of range of performances ranging from things like theatre to stand-up to kind of cabaret and feminist uh, poetry and things like that. So super, super diverse in that particular offering, which is awesome and always absolutely hilarious. Um, so, it's you know, a lot of the time some of the things that are being put on are super lighthearted, but they do have these um, key themes that um, underpin them that are generally around social issues um, that really connect with our audiences who, who participate in that stuff. Mm, amazing. So now, COVID, brand new nightclub, 12 months. Has this scared you off? Are we going to see more clubs like <laughs> like yours outside of Adelaide or another one or are you too scared? Look, I hope so. I, I really, really hope so. I'd love to see other venues keep popping up. And yeah, I guess the thing for us is that we really wanted to open somewhere that was just going to be an alternative offering. And a big thing about keeping business ethical is about providing choice to people and if we can keep seeing more and more of them pop up then that'd be great we don't want to be 
exceptional for having an accessible venue. We really want that to be mm. the norm. Yeah. Give people choice, let people come to us for what they want to come to, go to other venues for what they want to go to there. Um, as for how often that's going to happen, I'm not too sure. Some of the major barriers to actually putting on something like this, even outside of COVID, is a lot of red tape around things like insurance, um, which is super, super tricky to get um, and even harder to hold on to, especially in this climate with COVID and things. So, so is, that, is that an insurance issue because of the accessibility, therefore, with having disabled people on site? Is that the issue? No, not even, to be honest. It's not even. It's just a blanket issue for bricks and mortar businesses trying to be established as night spaces. Um, liquor licensing is... Um, a big deal. Um, so when it comes to the accessibility stuff, fortunately, that's actually not even um, on the radar of some of that, you know, really bureaucratic <laughs> yeah. uh, messy stuff. Um, but yeah, I mean, I would really, really hope that, you know, other people decide to take this sort of leap of faith. If they see that there's things that are missing in the night space, then, you know, go for it and do your research and put out surveys and things like that. And we'd always be open to collaborating with people who wanted to do that. There you go, Tristram. There's your next next venture in Brisbane, buddy. I was going to say, bring it to Brisbane. We're ready. No <laughs> yeah. one-hour waits for lifts. I'm ready to go. Yeah, um, go for it. <laughs> yeah, so um, love to know, Rachel, where did the name actually come from as well? Sure. The name My Lover Cindy is a bit of a throwback um, <laughs> to an old lesbian drama called The L Word. Hey, that's not old. Now you're having a go at Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> They've done a bit of a reboot. And whilst we acknowledge that the original series was loaded with problems for a whole bunch of reasons, <laughs> it was at the time kind of the only real representation that we had on mainstream TV mm. for, um, for lesbians. Um, and, yeah, so there was a... Um, there was a character in um, the L word called Cindy Tucker um, and her and her partner Dawn Dembo kind of come flying in and open this gay bar or whatever and um, the character Dawn Dembo, who's a bit of the alpha, I guess you'd say, she's, you know, pretty assertive, she's always introducing Cindy as my lover Cindy oh. and that's all. She just gets that, my lover Cindy, and then eventually Cindy Tucker um, ends up leaving the, the destructive relationship and she storms off like, my name's not my lover Cindy, my name's Cindy Tucker and storms off so it's all very dramatic. But, yeah, it's just a bit of a homage to that and also gay bars have for a long time um, been named very, very effeminate names. Mm. Um, so we're just kind of paying tribute to that. Very nice, very nice, very old school of you. But don't say L words that old. Making me feel old. (laughs) Now, Rachel, we like to wrap up each episode with the question. Here we go. You ready? Yes. Because it's obviously named Grow Bold with Disability. What does living a bold life mean to you? Living a bold life means to me living authentically. Um, It means being who you are. Um, to the best of your ability all of the time. Um, it means taking risks um, and it means loving each other. Well, I think you're doing that, especially with the authentically bit. You're doing an incredible job with my lover, Cindy. And if anyone is in Adelaide, make sure you look them up. Where are you guys based? Flinders Street in um, CBD, aren't you? Yeah, Flinders Street. So just on the east side, sort of heading towards um, the parklands on Flinders Street, 223 
we're in a building that was historically known as the German Club. So oh, yes, you might have had a Schutzenfest there yeah. <laughs> several years ago. Um, but yeah, definitely had a bit of a glow up. <laughs> Sounds like it, yes. Now, Rachel, thank you so much for joining us today on Grow Bold Disability, brought to you by Ferros Care. And our listeners can find out more about Rachel, Kate, and my lover, Cindy, in the links provided in today's episode show notes. Thanks again, Rachel. Thank you so much for your time. Appreciate it. This podcast is brought to you by Ferros Care, an NDIS partner delivering local area coordination services in Queensland, South Australia, and the Australian Capital Territory. Ferros Care is a people care organisation committed to helping people live bolder lives. We call it Growing Bold. And for over 30 years, Ferros has been making it real for both older Australians and those living with disability. To find out more, head to ferroscare.com.au.